Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about apocalyptic visions. God grabbed me. God's spirit took me up and set me down in the middle of an open plain strewn with bones. He led me around and among them. A lot of bones. There were bones all over the plain. Dry bones, bleached by the sun. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Master, God, only you know that. He said to me, Prophesy over these bones. Dry bones, listen to the message of God. God, the master, told the dry bones, Watch this. I'm bringing the breath of life to you, and you'll come to life. I'll attach sinews to you, put meat on your bones, cover you with skin, and breathe life into you. You'll come alive, and you'll realize that I am God. I prophesied just as I'd been commanded. As I prophesied, there was a sound, an oh, a rustling. The bones moved and came together, bone to bone. I kept watching. Sinews formed, then muscles on the bones, then skin stretched over them. But they had no breath in them. He said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Tell the breath, God the Master says, Come from the four winds. Come, breath. Breathe on these slain bodies. Breathe life. So I prophesied, just as he commanded me. The breath entered them, and they came alive. They stood up on their feet, a huge army. Then God said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Listen to what they're saying. Our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. There's nothing left of us. Therefore, prophesy. Tell them, God the Master says, I'll dig up your graves and bring you out alive, O my people. Then I'll take you straight to the land of Israel. When I dig up graves and bring you out as my people, you'll realize that I am God. I'll breathe my life into you, and you'll live. Then I'll lead you straight back to your land, and you'll realize that I am God. I've said it, and I'll do it. God's decree. These are the words from Ezekiel, chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. And Ezekiel, today, is our different drummer. This is one of those inappropriate conversations, recordings that I'm making where I feel like the different drummer might drive as much of this as anyone else. Although there will be some other things I'm going to share as this becomes a period of time in the Inappropriate Conversations podcast where I feel like I'm doing a lot of reading. So as I get to a couple of things that I wrote back to my days in newspapers and, and in a sort of a commentary editorial writer role for a while there, I'm going to steer away from readings for a bit through the rest of this different drummer. So don't fear. This is the only reading directly and that kind of detail from the book of Ezekiel that we'll have today. But I do want to talk about this notion of apocalyptic visions 
and try to connect the dots a little bit between the kind of things that you see in many cases prophesied in books like the book of Ezekiel and compare that with sort of the disastrous proclamations that you hear so often today in modern Christianity. This, in other words, being perhaps one of the most famous, the bones came together section of Ezekiel, perhaps his most surrealistic vision. And this is a book full of surrealistic visions where the answer is not intended to scare or harm. It is uh, designed to warn a little bit, but less about warning about bad things that will happen if you don't do this, but warning people who are completely lost in time and out of hope to have hope. Because a promise is being made that something that is seemingly supernatural is bringing dead bones strewn through a valley back to life again might have been the distance that the, the people who were in exile in Babylon felt. It might have felt like it was going to take some sort of resurrection to bring them back to their homeland and to restore them to the position that they'd been in before the devastation of, of the, uh, you know, the occupying and uh, the diaspora that occurred at that point in time. Ezekiel is a prophet, one of the major prophets in the Old Testament, major referring to the length of the book and the amount of detail in the in the prophecy shared in Scripture, as opposed to importance. Uh, an argument could be made that some of the smaller books are just as important. And interestingly, Ezekiel as a book sits in the Old Testament within you know, the Christian you know, vernacular, between Lamentations and Daniel, which is an excellent place for it. A book filled with uh, sorrowful and mournful poetry about uh, having lost everything and being in exile. And another book that was going to offer a lot of, uh, in Daniel's case, really interesting traditional storytelling, but also apocalyptic visions. The truth is, we don't have the book of Revelations, in my opinion, unless we have the books of Ezekiel and Daniel first, and that you can't understand the New Testament book of Revelations, if you don't have at least a somewhat solid understanding of many, including these two key Old Testament prophets. But I guess the warning then is that at the end of the Different Drummer segment, I'm going to come back and make a comparison to the apocalyptic visions and predictions in the Bible versus those that we see far too often today with inside evangelical Christianity. The one thing I'm not going to do yet that I'd like to do, and I probably will get to it in the month of October, is talk about what can only be described as the apocalyptic predictions of people on the political right at the time that Obama won not just the second, the re-election, but even the first election to revisit some of the things that were said to have uh, be inevitably happening to us very, very soon over stuff like uh, canceling the do-ask-do-tell policy in the military. Last I checked, we weren't under uh, enemy occupation and we hadn't become slaves of some other country. And um, that was going to happen within the first year or so after the end of do-ask-do-tell. It just it didn't happen. In other words, we're not that very good anymore at prophesying. That is clearly true of our political leaders. It's also, I think, increasingly being true of our of our Christian leaders as well, of our religious leaders. But first, let's do some justice to Ezekiel. If he's the different drummer today, what brought me to a sense that uh, Ezekiel needed to be called out, not unlike Amos a couple of years ago as a different drummer? Well, one of the things with uh, mentioning Amos in the Inappropriate Conversations episode, Letting Justice Roll, a title that was obviously an homage to Amos, that coming in Inappropriate Conversations 157, this one's a little bit different. This one's less about 
uh, the prophet from the Old Testament being perfectly on target with his words and in some ways even his situation for the topic I was trying to deal with. This is far more broad and abstract than that. I want to kind of deal with two things when it comes to Ezekiel, both of which are, I think are equally important. One is the surrealist nature of his visions and how often I've been told as somebody who considers myself to be a surrealist, at least when it comes to the fiction I enjoy and the fiction I've uh, in rare occasions produced, is that there's uh, there, you really can't harmonize the notion of surrealism with Christianity. And uh, there might be a little bit of truth to that in the sense that there's nothing anywhere near outside the book of Revelations as surreal in the New Testament as there are in the books of some of these prophets in the Old Testament. But if you view Christian scripture from a whole Bible perspective, Old Testament and New Testament, I flatly reject the argument that you can't harmonize surrealism with Christianity. And I do so from the book of Ezekiel alone. But the other thing I want to do is talk about apocalyptic visions and the purpose of them. Is there more to them than merely denouncing a group of people who are not in power? Because I think that's what we see. We see people calling about God's judgment or pointing to any tornado or earthquake as a sign that God is against Group X. When Group X tends to be people who are not the de facto kings or judges or leaders. That's kind of the difference I'll cite. So, wandering through the book of Ezekiel, if anybody wanted to do a little bit of exploring, I think it's interesting reading until you get to maybe the last eight chapters. And I'll talk about what that's all about, too. But I want us to sort of cite some specific chapters and guide people toward places where it would be interesting to look at the material. One of them is, uh, well, the very beginning, the very first two or three chapters. We get the expressions, um, Ezekiel saw the wheel. There's an old spiritual that has, that is essentially its title. Um, the notion of... Uh, Wheels within wheels. I hear that expression a lot. There's a couple of podcasts I listen to where one speaker in particular, Jewish man, uses that expression quite a bit, where something is perhaps more complex than we think, or even arguably beyond our comprehension, that when you look at it, you can somewhat comprehend part of it, but the rest you can't because there's wheels within wheels there. I mean, right in the very beginning of the book of Ezekiel, this prophet talks about things which would later appear in the book of Revelations, in the first few chapters, this notion of the uh, four-headed deity. And later on, in chapters 38 and 39, uh, God's rejection of, of Gog, which would appear directly in, in the book of Revelations. So you kind of have that. So maybe it makes more sense for me to talk a little bit about who Ezekiel was, so we can put in the context what all of these visions are really about. Ezekiel comes from a name that means God will strengthen he is a rare unifying force among biblical figures, uh, claimed equally in some ways by Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and Baha'i. He is acknowledged as a Hebrew prophet in Judaism and Christianity, according to Wikipedia. He is also viewed as the author of the book of Ezekiel that reveals prophecies regarding the destruction of Jerusalem, the restoration of the land Israel, and what some call the Millennial Temple Visions or the Third Temple. It's enough to agree that at the end of the book, Ezekiel goes into a great lot of detail describing a temple being rebuilt. And to me, it's enough to say that the length of this arguably tedious set of descriptions about what this future temple is going to be and what it's going to look like serves the purposes of providing that hope that was described in the first part of chapter 37 that I shared right at the beginning of, of the show to say that God was not only telling people through Ezekiel that I'm going to take you out of this exile, bring you back to the land. He was also describing the joy, for want of a better word, of a rebuilt temple. 
the author of the book of Ezekiel presents himself as Ezekiel, son of Buzzy. I'm going to refer to him as Ezekiel of Jerusalem, as I have with other prophets and biblical figures in the past, using that same sort of nomenclature. He was born into a priestly lineage, and apart from identifying himself, the author gives a chronology of the first divine encounter which he will present. He states that in the 30th year, which may be a reference to his age at the time, in such case, the approximate year is 622 BC. He also dates the events five years after the exile of the king of Judah by the Babylonians, and a recurring pattern throughout the book. The Jewish historian Josephus claims that under the request of Nebuchadnezzar II, Babylonian armies exiled 3,000 Jews from Judah after deposing the king at the time. According to the Bible, Ezekiel and his wife lived on the bank of the Kibar River in Tel Abib, and where the exiles from Judah came to seek his prophetic insights. There's no mention of him having any offspring, only that his wife died rather young. Ezekiel describes his calling to be a prophet by going into great detail about his encounter, or I would say, encounters with God. Uh, this is Wikipedia again. Uh, the four living creatures were cherubim with four wheels that stayed beside the creatures. In the next five years, he incessantly prophesied and acted out the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple, which was met with some opposition. However, Ezekiel and his contemporaries, like Jeremiah, another prophet who was living in Jerusalem at the time, witnessed the fulfillment of their prophecies when Jerusalem was finally sacked by the Babylonians. The date of this sacking, 587 BC, is confirmed by the Babylonian cuneiform records discovered by archaeologists. Ezekiel was 50 years old when he began to have visions of a new temple. He served as a prophet for at least 22 years. He last experienced an encounter with God in April 570 BC. And the time of his death has not been recorded. So a little bit about Ezekiel. So this first encounter, this wheels within wheels encounter, right at the beginning of the book. And then later, he says some things that I think is going to capture my point of view about prophets of Ezekiel's time versus the so-called prophets of today. I will quote this directly from Ezekiel 13, 2 through 9. Preach to them the real thing, God says. Tell them. Listen to God's message. God the Master pronounces doom on the empty-headed prophets who do their own thing and know nothing of what's going on. Your prophets, Israel, are like jackals scavenging through the ruins. They haven't lifted a finger to repair the defenses of the city and have risked nothing to help Israel stand on God's day of judgment. All they do is fantasize comforting illusions and preach lying sermons. They say, God says, when God hasn't so much as breathed in their direction. And yet they happen to stand around thinking that something they said is going to happen. Haven't you fantasized sheer nonsense? Aren't your sermons tissues of lies saying, God says, when I've done nothing of the kind? Therefore, and this is the message of God, the Master, remember, I'm dead set against prophets who substitute illusions for visions and use sermons to tell lies. I'm going to ban them from my council of people, remove them from membership in Israel, and outlaw them from the land of Israel. Then you'll realize that I am God, the Master. Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 2 through 9, making a distinction between illusions and visions, meaning that when it comes to talking about the surreal nature of the things that Ezekiel describes about himself in the book, I think you'd have to make a distinction between saying that Ezekiel is providing a set of visions given from and blessed by God, and standing in opposition to the things that are being described here as illusions of the previous preachers of the day in Jerusalem. There are a couple of other ways in which 
References in the book of Ezekiel are extremely valuable to what I might describe as modern Christianity. Anybody who's listened closely to the last few episodes of Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth, all the way to the end, have heard a tag from the Pride 48 community. Uh, Inappropriate Conversations is going to be listed on a Pride 48 landing page on iTunes as part of that community. And I'm, I'm very proud to say that that's, that's happened just here in the last year or so. And part of that is that uh, at first, maybe a year ago I, or two years ago, I would have said that I, I'm not sure that somebody who is heterosexual but uh, very sympathetic to the plight faced by people seeking equality might not fit in. But I think probably the way you'd word this is that as an ally of that community, I'm part of that community in every way, including from a podcasting perspective. Well, Ezekiel chapter 16 gives us the answer to the question, what is the actual definition of the word sodomy? It is in this particular book that the very definitive, literal definition is laid down. And it's people who refuse to lift a finger to help those who are in need. People who refuse to show hospitality. People who would rather see violence done to people. Or see them completely ostracized rather than to lift a finger to help them out. In other words, the real sodomites seem to be the people who define sodomy in a very different way. This comes to us from Ezekiel chapter 16. I also appreciate Ezekiel chapter 36 and what it helps do with what I describe sometimes as an in-house debate over the question of baptism. Ezekiel 36 describes in the message version, which is the one I read from at the beginning of the show today, a baptism by pouring. The other translations that I've read over the years, New Revised Standard Version, for example, or Good News, talk about a baptism by sprinkling. I guess the way I would describe it is to talk about Encounters I've had in the past with some people within Christianity who feel like baptism is only legitimate if it involves a complete underwater submersion type of a process. I've been in denominations before where baptism was any which way you wanted to do it, but traditionally, when in doubt, more often than not, you'd see it done through sprinkling. And then I've been in part of churches before where, you know, again, any method's okay, but the one you typically see is dunking. Taken to its logical extreme, you could have people who say that a baptism is not a baptism unless you're standing in Israel or Jordan alongside the River Jordan and get baptized there. But Ezekiel makes it clear that this process of God intervening in some sort of a water-based ritual to quote-unquote wash people clean, replace their stone hearts with a new heart and give them the ability to understand what the Holy Spirit is asking them to do and the means by which to accomplish it. There's no doubt in my mind that Ezekiel chapter 36 is describing a baptism. That was actually the first thing that initially brought me to the book of Ezekiel as a book that I needed to read the other 35 preceding chapters and, and eight or nine chapters afterward because it, it earned that. And of course, the first time I'd ever encountered the ideas of Ezekiel was probably as a very young kid, 10 years old or less, watching a scary movie on a Friday night made for TV movie of the week kind of thing called And the Bones Came Together, which was referring to uh, the idea of, uh, in this case, it was a rich witchcraft-type story where a banker had done an elderly couple wrong and the uh, the woman was a witch and he didn't know it and she ended up taking over the body of his wife and the, just shortly after his uh, first child had been born and he comes home and the the witch is now in the place of his wife holding his baby and you hear in her craggly old woman voice saying, Daddy's home. And that was called. And the bones came together as a way of sort of offering some sort of a foreboding vision about evil being able to uh, 
right wrongs by coming back to life and extracting judgment or things of that nature. But notice that when I shared the section of chapter 37 at the beginning here to introduce Ezekiel, it wasn't a story of scary, foreboding, bad things. It was trying to tell people that their situation could be completely rectified and and reversed, and they needed to have hope. Now, I would love to end this with that positive word, but I think it's probably important to talk a little bit about chapters 32 through 34, because I think that there's an interesting word of warning in there, some that apply politically and some that for me might actually apply personally. And therefore, by looking at that, it's the last part of this different drummer segment. I'm going to cut short any references between the books of Ezekiel and Revelations, just to say that anyone who's read Revelations before and then looks back at Ezekiel chapters 38, 39, is going to have an unmistakable reminder that you kind of need to know what was meant by these Old Testament prophets to correctly interpret what's being described in the book of Revelations. Because in many cases, Ezekiel and Daniel in particular, they're playing with the same metaphors, describing some of the same things. And it's not enough to just read it and decide that because you don't like the president that it's describing Obama. It's got to be understood with a great deal more literary interpretation and skill than that, if not biblical hermeneutics. So there's a lot about the book of Revelations that can be uh, gleaned and understood from the book of Ezekiel, including what might actually be the first references or the first kind of direct parallels to our notions today within a lot of Christianity that Satan was an angel who was too proud to accept the will of God and rebelled. Uh, that idea begins to appear in the book of Ezekiel, along with the idea of God having the power to turn the moon out. And this language being used in flowery, descriptive ways, not in strict, wooden, literalistic ways. And it's funny to me that the same Christians who somehow can read the book of Ezekiel and understand the language as apocalyptic and therefore descriptive uh, and not literalistic, cannot seem to grant themselves the same skills in literary interpretation when they get to the very end of the of their Bible and the New Testament. Uh, 34 begins with the sheep getting scattered and God denouncing the leaders of Israel, uh, talking about their own love of comfort and power, saying things like, doom to you, shepherds of Israel, feeding your own mouths. Aren't the shepherds supposed to feed the sheep? You drink the milk, you make the clothes from the wool, you roast the lambs, but you don't feed the sheep. You don't build up the weak ones. Don't heal the sick. Don't doctor the injured. Don't go after the strays. Don't look for the lost. Instead, you bully and badger them. Listen, I know a lot of people in my world who could identify with these words, who would understand what it feels like to be somebody that the church has arbitrarily, in some cases, decided don't belong and therefore are outside the circle of grace, is the term I've heard used for it. And therefore, you end up with people who've been called to retrieve the lost sheep, instead being the ones who've personally hand-selected which sheep are no longer allowed in the flock. In Ezekiel 33, uh, God talks directly to Ezekiel, telling him that he's a watchman and that he has been, as a prophet, appointed and put in charge to see war coming and blow the trumpet to warn the people. And tells Ezekiel that you need to understand how important this is. If you're a watchman and you blow the trumpet and somebody sleeps through your warning, just rolls over, hits the snooze button, and ignores you, and calamity strikes as a result, then that's not on you. You've done your job as the watchman. If, on the other hand, you don't blow the trumpet when you see the signs of danger coming, 
you are personally responsible as the watchman for what happens, whether that be death or rape or being carried off and imprisoned. Whatever fate befalls the people you failed to warn, the blame lies solely with you. In other words, as someone who's been given the ability to speak and the words to say, there's a tremendous amount of responsibility to say those words. This ties in with, first off, concepts that Jesus would refer back to, really not indirectly. In Matthew chapter 25, the passage called the Great Judgment, or in John, like chapters 10, 11, somewhere in there, where he's talking about himself being the well and truly good shepherd who comes back for the sheep and has sheep from different flocks and different pens that he intends to unite as one flock. That is you know, one of the uh, Old Testament references right here in the book of Ezekiel. The parallel passage, though, that I find a little bit confusing or a little bit concerning comes at the end of chapter 33, and it makes me worry a little bit that it's one thing to speak and not be heard at all. It's a different thing to speak and be heard and have nothing come from it. Here's what the uh, message translation or paraphrase says, starting with verse 30. As for you, son of man, you become quite the talk of the town. Your people meet on street corners in front of their houses and say, hey, let's go hear the latest news from God. They show up, as people tend to do, and sit in your company. They listen to you speak, but don't do a thing you say. They flatter you with compliments, but all they care about is making money and getting ahead. To them, you're merely entertainment. A country singer of sad love songs playing a guitar. They love to hear you talk, but nothing comes from it. But when all this happens, and it is going to happen, they'll realize that a prophet was among them. For the record, I don't feel like a prophet, and I don't presume to be one. But I do want to flash back to moments in time where I've called out the nonsense that I'm seeing from people who do claim to be prophets. I want to flash us back to September 13th, 1988. But I want to provide a little bit of context first, because I think that probably is kind of important. Here's what Wikipedia says about somebody who lived between 1932 and 2001, named Edgar C. Wisenant. Wisnett was a former NASA engineer and Bible student who predicted the rapture would occur in 1988, sometime between September 11th and September 13th. He published two books about this, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, and On Borrowed Time. Eventually, 300,000 copies of the 88 Reasons were mailed free of charge to ministers across America, and 4.5 million copies were sold in bookstores and elsewhere. Wisnett was quoting as saying, only if the Bible is an error am I wrong, and I say that to every preacher in town. And, if there were a king in this country and I could gamble with my life, I would stake my own life on Rosh Hashanah 1988 as being the end of the world. Wisnant's predictions were taken seriously in some parts of the evangelical Christian community, more than we might know. As the date approached, regular programming on the Christian Trinity Broadcasting Network was interrupted to provide special instructions on preparing for the rapture. When the predicted rapture failed to occur, Wisnant followed up with later books with predictions for various other dates in 1989, 1993, and 1994. These books did not sell in quantity. Wisnant continued to issue various rapture predictions through 1997, but gathered 
little attention. He died May 16th, 2001. So that is the character and, you know, a real life person, but character in the other sense of the word of Edgar Wisenant. And at the time, 1988, I was working as a copy editor for a daily newspaper in the middle part of the country. And I would not want to oversell the influence that Wisenant had, but it also would be extremely wrong to undersell it. There were people who were taking the things that he was saying very seriously. After all, smart guy, national engineer, wrote some books, appears on TV, Trinity Broadcasting Network TV, but still appears on TV. And talking about a concept that a lot of these people really believe in, this notion of the rapture. Well, I will tell you that the brightest Christian scholars today, and frankly, most of them felt the same way back then, don't see any biblical evidence for the existence of rapture. I have never in my life had a single conversation with somebody who can point to a scriptural justification for this concept of rapture. It comes from a fundamental misreading of the books of Daniel and Revelation, and it comes from a really false and almost comical misinterpretations of the letters to the Thessalonians from the Apostle Paul. But it's too easy for me to just grant that there's no reason to lose sleep over this because he's predicting something that the Bible has said won't occur, at least not in the way that Wizenant said it would occur. No, instead, I was able to use my position as a member of the editorial board and a copy editor to write two columns during that year. I want to share them in what I think is reverse order. This was probably the last column that I wrote for the newspaper before switching careers and going off to do something different. And it was called Crashing the Rapture Watch Party. It came out in the uh, newspaper on September 13th, the morning at the end of the range of his predictions, and I probably wrote it about a week earlier, preparing myself for what seemed to me to be the inevitable result of all of this hullabaloo and nonsense. Here's that editorial. My plan was simple. Call and ask. It's the only way to know. Hello, this is Rapture Patrol Agent 675. Is Edgar Wisenant still on the planet? I know, impersonating a rapture patrol agent could get me seven years of tribulation if I'm caught, but I really want to know. That is, after all, why I called. I also took a less flippant approach because I didn't want to get thumped, and I did hope for an answer. For those of you who haven't been watching the clock this week, Edgar C. Wisnant of Little Rock, Arkansas, had predicted the rapture would occur between Sunday and Tuesday. In fact, he pinpointed his departure at 11 a.m. Tuesday or earlier. Using Bible prophecy, numbers, and current events, the retired NASA engineer unraveled the mystery and began broadcasting his findings over a Christian radio network. When I awoke Tuesday morning at 11.33 a.m., I immediately called because I overslept and thereby missed the big event. Still being in the world was, of course, a disappointment. Not getting a chance to wish Edgar goodbye was a bigger disappointment. You see, the discussion he inspired in my home and workplace about an otherwise rhetorical question was so impressive, I realized I'd probably miss Edgar if he descended into heaven. He did not. As a result, Edgar's likely to be ridiculed until the day he does meet his maker. Doubtless, he received numerous pejorative telephone calls on Tuesday alone, but not from me. I called to tell him a great truth emerged from his ministry after all a lesson of biblical proportions. The lesson, God doesn't work like officials in the U.S. government. The Lord wouldn't initiate a plan of such dash and daring by leaking the news to a radio station, not even a Christian radio station. As Jesus told his disciples on the Mount of Olives, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 
Matthew 24. So rather than bowing in disappointment and embarrassment, Edgar and his radio audience have cause to celebrate. After all, the watch party is still on. Peoples of the universe, please attend carefully. The message that follows is vital to the future of you all. Greetings, fellow wanderers in the fourth dimension. I'm Emma Foster. And I'm Michael Mould. And we're the hosts of The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, Simpson Syndicated's foray into all things Doctor Who. From the old... Hey, hey, Doctor Who. What are you talking about? To the new... I'm the Doctor. I'm worse than everybody's aunt. From the good... We all make no one. We are the superior beings. To the bad... No, not the mind's pro. From the sublime... Don't blink. Don't even blink. Blink and you're dead. To the ridiculous. My dreams of conquest. We'll be sharing our thoughts and feelings across the broad spectrum of the Hooniverse. You're serious, aren't you? About what I do, yes. Not necessarily the way I do it. That's the greatest show in the galaxy, part of the simply syndicated 21st century media network. Splendid fellows, all of you, all of you. I mentioned that as the second time that I took a pot shot at evangelical nonsense related to overreacting to a misunderstanding of the news of the day or what stuff means. And, and to be honest, I think I could probably be rightly accused of going light on Edgar Wisenant during what was probably his darkest day. The conversation never got past his secretary or whoever answers the phone for him. But all the same, as described, that was the effort that I made. I tend to be a little bit harsher with people who are more interested in banning things than promoting things. Notice this difference. In Ezekiel 37, the prophet, the prophet best known for his apocalyptic visions, is casting a very scary scene that's all about saying, because of this, there is hope. That's different from saying that because of this, the world's going to come to an end, or terrible calamities are going to befall you. And it's not that prophets throughout all of the major religions, have not at times cast visions of doom and foreboding and uh, justice being served on people. But that's not all that's there. So I reacted a couple of months earlier to the church in this small city that I lived in rallying forces to ban something. They were picketing to make sure that the local movie theater did not even consider screening the Last Temptation of Christ. Now, let's be honest. This is a small Midwestern red state city with a population of less than 35,000 people. There's no way that the small, you know, one theater in town was going to spend a screen on The Last Temptation of Christ, which made the whole point kind of silly to me to begin with. And this time, instead of responding to the silliness of an evangelist who'd been given way more than his 15 minutes of fame, I reacted even more harshly, I think, perhaps, but with a goal of being educational to a much broader group of evangelical Christians who had banded together to make sure that something got banned. Again, Wisnant, misguided though he was, was trying to call people together to recognize some biblical untruth that he felt was very true was going to happen for the good of all the people who were believers. That at least has something of the uh, optimistic notes from parts of Ezekiel in it, but... Churches celebrating the vandalism of movie theaters, bricks being thrown through windows, threatening calls in the middle of the night to the manager of the establishment who often has absolutely no control over what his movie theater chain is screening at any given time anyway, all completely unacceptable. So this time, instead of a short column, truly an editorial in every way, that the whole newspaper felt comfortable being part of, 
This was more of a commentary section, a little bit of a broader sort of column length. I had more room to work with, and I chose to do it. And I think, uh, obviously, if this one wasn't well-received, I wouldn't have been given permission to write the other one, which was literally being written on my way out the door. Uh, I was moving from one state to another and one career to another at the time. And when I wrote this, I, of course, hadn't seen The Last Temptation of Christ because I was in the middle states. I was in a red state. It wasn't going to be showing in my area. I think the initial broadcast run of Martin Scorsese's interpretation of a book by Nikos Kostantzakis was probably only shown in 10 or 12 cities at the most nationwide initially. And even in cities that have a reputation for being very tolerant of, well, let's call it all things Hollywood, uh, Los Angeles, there was... Uh, there were protests and there were acts of violence at those movie theaters. So when I'm referring to things that happened, they may be forgotten now, but they felt very true to me in 1988. I don't remember the name of this one. It doesn't have the title. I'm just going to read my writer's copy. Well, I'm baffled about how people can dismiss a film as a work of art without seeing it. One fundamental principle arising from the protest over the last temptation of Christ is quite clear. No movie could possibly endanger an individual's faith. The public outcry over director Martin Scorsese's adaptation of the novel by Nikos Kadzitzakis has raised charges of blasphemy and heresy. These arguments can be justified only after viewing the movie, but the alleged threat the film poses the individual or society can be addressed at any time. The primary Christian concern deals with a false notion of Christ fundamentalists say the film portrays. Their fear is that people will lose faith or fail to develop faith after being misguided by fiction. Of course, the impact of the film will change within the demographics of each audience. Some truly have faith in God. This group is divinely protected from any negative image a blasphemous representation of Christ could create. Through faith, which is a knowledge of God, they know the truth. The true believer would confuse Ronald Reagan with Franklin Roosevelt before confusing the Lord with any false metaphor. Some sincerely believe there is no God. It's ludicrous for Christians to argue that the last temptation of Christ could lead atheists further astray. To a believer, what can be further astray than atheism? Some, in fact a great many, don't know. The Reverend Alvin A. Illig, director of the Paulus National Catholic Evangelization Association, recently referred to this group as unchurched. They are the 44% of adult Americans who don't belong to a church or attend only on occasions. The fundamentalist argument about the effect of Scorsese's movie on the latter group goes something like this. People who don't know Christ will see the movie, become confused by a presentation that seems to contradict what they have heard, and by avoiding the dissonance, will further distance themselves from the reach of evangelism. Fortunately for Christians, the logic in this argument is faulty. Opponents to The Last Temptation fail to recognize that something evangelical happens whenever people drop their affairs and think about God. Illig suggested that the number of unchurched individuals is rising because Christians fail to reach out to the average person. One thing Scorsese's movie will do, whether canonically or not, is reach out to the average American. More than likely, and again I haven't seen it, Joe Average will be confronted with the kinds of images protesters claim he will. He will see Christ struggling with his humanity and lust after Mary Magdalene. After leaving the movie, Joe is so confused. After all, this is true blasphemy that he spends the rest of the evening talking about the show with his wife. He even talks, takes the topic to work with him the next day, where many of his unchurched friends will grow curious to see the film themselves. Ultimately, Joe decides to find out whether what he saw was true, and to find the truth, he winds up going to church or reading the Bible. 
The American Family Association, Moral Majority, and Campus Crusade for Christ completely missed the point by protesting the film. Christians interested in evangelism should embrace, if only platonically, any medium that forces people to think about God. Only movies seem to draw this fire from fundamentalists. The public library where I live has a card catalog indicating that Katzenzakis' book has been on the shelf for more than ten years. Somehow reading a book doesn't pose the same threat to faith. The notion that celluloid jabs at Christianity are relatively new and therefore should be nipped in the bud doesn't pan out. Attacks on the church by filmmakers are as old as the mass communication form itself. A depraved sadist appears as Christ, complete with cross, in 1930, La Jador. The Last Supper was posed as a beggar's banquet in 1961, Viridiana. Simeon the Stylite, an early Christian ascetic, winds up drinking in a bar with a nubile blonde Satan in 1965, Simon of the Desert. My list is by no means exhaustive. All these movies were made by the same director, Luis Buñuel. Buñuel is not a nobody. Regarded as a master filmmaker, his movies are shown at college campuses across the country, including states where I've lived. And all the films mentioned can be rented by mail order. We'll get to that topic later. Scorsese is not a nobody either. Raging Bull garnered an Oscar nomination for Best Director. Other films like Taxi Driver and The Last Waltz earned widespread critical acclaim. He didn't emerge from Friday the 13th. Comparisons between the two support Scorsese's argument that his movie is faith-affirming. Unlike Bunuel, Scorsese believes in the church and hasn't revealed any distaste for organized religion. The bottom line is that blasphemous movies have been made since the silent era, and Christianity has not fallen apart as a result. The reason is faith. Maybe if Christians who already know God would formally wash their hands of the last temptation of Christ, the Joe Averages would have a chance to either be inspired or repulsed by another person's opinion about Jesus. Regardless how people react, the movie seems quite likely to lure many of America's unchurched back into the sanctuary. Greetings from the cockpit. This is Captain Scott, and we'd like to thank you for flying the Seder Sphere. This is co-pilot Cindy. We ask you at this time to unfasten your safety belt and release your chairs from their uptight position. We're high-flying with stopovers expected in theater, gaming, movies, television, and other mature destinations. We'd like to thank you for flying the frisky skies, and we hope to see you on our next flight to the Seder Sphere. Well, the article written in 1988, um, you know, there's a lot of time has gone by between now and then. I can't speak for what Scorsese has expressed as political views or even religious views about the church. I don't know whether his Catholicism is as strong now as it was then, and I can't really speak with authority on how strong it might have been all the way back then. His reputation as a director, is, of course, has only grown since then. I didn't get to see the movie The Last Temptation of Christ at the time. That would come much later. But my argument was that the reason that it hadn't been disseminated more freely before was because of this opposition to the, by the church, and the opposition by the church needed to stop. Probably the way I saw the movie was years later by borrowing the film from a public library. I can't tell you how many of the... Uh, unregarded or underregarded classics that I've seen have come because libraries at around this time began stocking videotape and later DVD and now Blu-ray on their shelves. The other thing, though, that I kind of mentioned about movies being available by mail order is that long before Netflix, this was 1988, 
long before Netflix, I was watching some of the great movies in the history of cinema through mail order. That Netflix, in other words, did not begin the process of home delivery. They jumped in at the convenient moment when the media moved to DVD and therefore to a much uh, more stable stock, a stock much less likely to be chewed up by a machine or to biodegrade by being exposed to heat. I was part of a a home film festival, literally was its name, back in the era of VHS. That is definitely how I first saw the three Bunuel films that I mentioned in this editorial, La Jador, Viridiana, Simon of the Desert, and more. The process back then was not at all unlike what you see today with uh, the DVD version, still in effect for some homes, and Netflix, except instead of a uh, sleeve that's as thin as like a mailing envelope, because all that's inside of it is a DVD, it was more of a box that was being mailed back and forth as a parcel with VHS tapes inside it. I always tried to make sure that I got two at a time because that seemed to be the most cost-effective uh, from a postage perspective, meaning that I had to understand whether what I was watching was a very long film. Uh, Kings of the Road by Vim Vendors, for example, was going to be a two-VHS set, in which case I'd only want to rent one of them at a time, or whether I wanted to put together double features as best I could to make sure that I was maximizing the cost of postage. So I put my money where my mouth is, and at the time that I was interested in these films that were not easy to obtain in states like Oklahoma and Kansas, I did my best to watch the things that I felt like needed to be watched, so I could speak intelligently, or at least as intelligently as I am able, about the concepts being introduced by film, especially when those concepts were viewed by people to be somehow controversial or even blasphemous. These warnings about the evil of watching a movie or feeding hungry people, or taking in desperate refugees, many of whom Christian, no matter what part of the country they came from, but even those who aren't, ties in with the lessons being taught to us in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is applying the concept of apocalyptic visions more to the terrible things that will happen to you if you don't show hospitality to those who are the most desperate in need or the most disenfranchised. Not warning people that if you actually decide that you're going to tolerate or love somebody in your family who's homosexual, that therefore God is somehow going to slap you down and smite you. That's the difference. And when we come along maybe a little bit closer to the election this year, late October is kind of my forecast, and look at the apocalyptic warnings being offered by politically active Christians here in the last few years based on the results of presidential election results that didn't suit their fancy, I think we're going to see that difference loud and clear that not only are their predictions as wrong as Edgar Wisenant's prediction of the end of the world coming on or before September 13th, 1988, but we're also going to see that their purpose is not to encourage and to uplift. Their, their purpose isn't even to steer and guide in a positive direction. Their purpose is to draw a line between who's in and who's out. And Jesus tells us in the Great Judgment, echoing Ezekiel in chapters like 36, that the, the task of separating the sheep from the goats belongs to God and God alone, and the flock has no business arguing whether that sheep is too black to be in with the rest of the flock. If you'd like to offer some dialogue to this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I also have show notes for every episode at inappropriateconversations.org. By every episode, I mean every episode going back to Inappropriate Conversations 1, and for that matter, all the way back to Walk the Earth 1 as well. I don't take them down from the website. You can interact with the show at Twitter via IC underscore Greg, or there's pages set up for both Walk the Earth and 
uh, inappropriate conversations separately as Facebook pages where I do post some of the things that I'm thinking about so you can kind of see the direction that I'm moving the show in going forward. There's a chance that I will have a points and questions show next. So anybody who wants to offer any questions or feedback to IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com, still a chance I could include that in the next recording of Inappropriate Conversations. There's a little bit of time. The next release will be Walk the Earth. But in October, I'm eyeballing two shows. If I do two, one will be a feedback show with a a bit of a political perspective being added, time of year, uh, presidential election year. And then the other show that I've mentioned in terms of, let's take a look back at some of the prophecies, quote unquote, that were made when Obama got elected. So there might be two shows in October, or at the very least, uh, one in very early November to cover sort of this pre-election vibe going on right now. Other ways that you can encounter and interact with inappropriate conversations, Stitcher Smart Radio is one, SoundCloud is another. I need to get back to the process of putting clips from older inappropriate conversations episodes up so that if somebody wanted to do more than read the, read the blurb before listening to the show, but maybe listen to a clip of the show itself, SoundCloud, I am IC underscore Greg there, has clips for more than a hundred of the past inappropriate conversations, and I want to continue to move forward through time and keep that up and running for as long as I possibly can. In the meantime, thanks for listening. is a proud member of the Pride 48 Podcasting Network. Check out other great podcasts at pride48.com slash shows.